0: Hey everyone, welcome back to On Purpose, the number one health podcast in the world. Thanks to each and every single one of you. Thank you for coming back every single week to listen, to learn, and to grow. Now, I know that you're going to be excited for this one. I know this is someone that you've always wanted me to interview and sit down with. And this is all someone that I've been dying to meet and we finally, finally, finally made it happen. I'm so grateful for today's guest. It is none other than Rich Roll. Now, Rich Roll was named one of the tw- 25 fittest men in the world by Men's Fitness and the world's fittest vegan by Men's Health. Rich is a globally known ultra endurance athlete, wellness advocate, best-selling author, husband and father of four. At age 40, Rich walked away from a career in law, dropped weight and reinvented himself as an ultra distance endurance athlete the first of two people to complete five Ironmans on five Hawaiian islands in under a week. It's crazy, literally insane. He is also the host of the wildly popular Rich Roll podcast, which I know you're big fans of, one of the top 100 podcasts in the world with over 70 million downloads. Today, I'm excited for him to share his inspirational story of addiction, redemption, and optimal health. Welcome to the show, Rich Roll. So good to be here. Thanks so for having me, So good to me, Jay. have you, man. Yeah, it's Thanks nice you. to finally meet you. I, I feel know. like
1: I know you. I've been following your stuff for a long time, so...
0: Well, I'm very grateful. The feeling is so mutual. And yeah, it's always good when you... I, that's, that is why I do love social media. I, I love it for this, that when you meet someone, you feel like, I already know this person. We can dive straight into it. I gave you a big hug on the way in. I didn't even think twice about it. Lots and, of uh, mutual friends. Yeah, too. exactly. And so I feel connected to you already. Oh, amazing, man. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. How do you describe someone who has done five Ironmans and on five Hawaiian islands. Like, how do you describe that person? I don't know. You're the host. <laughs> right? That's your job. I never know how to, how to uh, articulate
1: what it is that I do. People are like, what do you do? And um, yes, I've done some athletic things, but, you know, I'm a writer. I'm a podcast host. I'm a father. Um, I do lots of different things. And, and uh, I, I never really know how to answer that question or fully describe you
0: know, <laughs> I think that's I all of us today yeah. none of us know how to explain what we do my yeah. mom has no idea how to explain what I do my right. wife has no idea to explain <laughs> yeah. what I do and even I do and they're like uh-huh. yeah what do you want your lower bed to be I'm like uh-huh. I don't know like when what are you what gonna a- get a real job yeah exactly mm. exactly but uh tell me about you you just said that you're a father your father of four mm-hmm. what what's the best thing you enjoy doing with your kids like what's been the last crazy thing that you've done with them crazy thing yeah. well we
1: were in Australia for the month of December so that was super fun um spent uh, time in Sydney and in Byron Bay. So I just like being out in nature with my kids. Just simple, you know, it's the simple things. It's not like, oh, here's the crazy thing that we did. It's the little moments. It's the, you know, conversation in the car on the way to dropping them off at school or, you know, a walk with the dogs on the trails, like outside my home. I live in a pretty rural area outside Los Angeles. So those those are the things that I think are the most meaningful and anybody who's a parent, I think can probably connect with that.
0: And any memorable conversations recently where they've given some words of wisdom to you or, or, <laughs> well, or made you add an awakening or anything uh, you like know, that? Trust me, you yeah?
1: know, my biggest teachers, uh, you know, my 16-year-old right now is, is really handing it to me, you know, and I think, <laughs> I think that I've got my spiritual program dialed in and that I have, you know... Um, transcended so many of my character defects. And they say like I'm long time in recovery for alcoholism. And one of the kind of catchphrases is if you wanna confront your character defects, get into a relationship Mm. and I would, up that ante by saying, have a 16-year-old daughter and she will <laughs> show you exactly where you're at. Uh, and I feel like God or the universe or however you wanna describe your higher power kind of puts in your path uh, these kinds of teachers who will um, challenge you in ways that, that uh, you didn't anticipate. My, my 16-year-old daughter certainly does that. She knows how to press my buttons and you know we get into it daily. And it's great for both of us, but it's hard, man. Mm. It's hard being a parent.
0: Yeah, no, I, I have no... I have plans at some point to become a parent, but I can see and observe from other people's experiences how hard it is. So I'm, I'm making sure that I'm as prepared as I can be from, from that point of view before I dive into it. So, yeah, I will come to you for some 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 <laughs> advice either. and tips. Everyone's always uh, telling me, like, Jay, when are you going to write a children's book? I'm like, uh, I am never going to write a book on how to be a parent because it's I, I don't um, I don't see there being a formula. And when I speak to parents, they're always very open about the fact of just it's a new learning curve every day and every day yeah every day it's awesome and your wife is an incredible uh vegan chef And cook and author. She's
1: she's also somebody that that kind of defies definition. She does lots of things. It's funny. She's written three plant-based cookbooks, Mm -hmm. Plant Power Way, Plant Power Way Italia. She wrote a a book on how to make plant-based cheese called This This Cheese is Nuts. And (laughs) the funny thing is that's how people know of her is this, this sort of vegan chef. And she's like, I'm not a vegan chef. That was just one thing that I did. Like she would consider herself much more an artist, a musician, a spiritual teacher. She has her own podcast, um, and uh, her wisdom is profound, so I learned from her daily. she's very much my teacher as well.
0: yeah, that's beautiful, yeah, I, I feel that way, but with my wife, like i when I met my wife, a lot of i'd been involved in meditation and spirituality for a lot longer in terms uh-huh, of time, right. and so a lot of people thought that she was not going to be spiritual enough to marry me, and it's like. the the joke's on everyone because she's like so much faster (laughs) past than me naturally and intentionally and like all of this is so natural and easy and organic for her. Whereas for me, it's always been a work. Like I've had to work for any growth I've had spiritually or internally Whereas for her, she's kind of like just got this natural energy. Exusted, she's boy- natural. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. it's it's fun to be around that. And and it sounds like your wife has the same. So. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much. So. We're very we're very lucky. Yeah, yeah, we upgraded. It's good.
1: You're lucky, but also sometimes you want to just relax. <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? And Julie will be like. Is that really what you want to be doing right now? Like she's push, she's always pushing me, and and that's great. You know, I'm always growing because yeah. she's challenging me, yeah. or or she's she's sort of showing me where I need that growth. You mm-hmm. know, and sometimes you don't want to always look at that. You mm-hmm. want to just not be reminded that you still have growth uh, that can be had. Um, so that's that's like the the challenging part of it. But you know, of course, it's a gift, right? Yeah, and I would not have accomplished any of the things that I've done without, you know, having that partnership.
0: Yeah, what do you do
1: to relax then? I mean, I like going to the movies, you know. like, okay, you know, like me stuff too. Stuff like that. What's, I, you know, what's I, your
0: favorite movie you saw recently? Uh, favorite movie recently. Well, like a good one that was recently. Yeah. I'm a big movie guy too so I more mean, than TV shows. I you
1: know I see I see everything. I can even find the good and the worst movies out okay, there. Okay, okay, fine. Um, but I loved uh I love JoJo Rabbit. I thought oh, that, I, I seen thought Taika Waititi is Taika Waititi is a brilliant director.
0: Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. Let's let's go back now. Let's let's Talk a bit about how you got here. And I know you've told this story before, but for me, it's fascinating. And I think for my audience, it will be fascinating to hear it. And please share any parts that you haven't shared before or get lost in it in your own way. But your relationship with drugs and alcohol took you away from your athleticism. When did you get introduced to it? And why was it so captivating or intoxicating that it it took you away from something that is so natural to you?
1: Yeah, well, I think... Um, you know, I get the question all the time, like, why do you think you're an alcoholic? And and you can kind of chase that answer to your, you know, for the rest of your life. And I'm not sure you can ever get a completely satisfactory answer. You know, I am an alcoholic because I am. Um, I'm more interested in what the solution is yeah. to the problem than trying to figure out what caused it. But I would say that from a very young age, you know, I was somebody who was naturally pretty socially awkward and very introverted. I had difficulty making friends and, you know, I was the kid on the playground who was picked last for kickball. Like I was not, you know, um, I was really, I felt like I lacked that, rule book for life that everyone seemed to naturally have. And I was unaware that there was any other way of living other than how I was living until I discovered alcohol. Um, And I think, you know, as I was growing up, I found my way into swimming. And that was the one thing that I could do that I had some natural acumen for. And I kind of doubled down on that. And got better and better, and the better I got in swimming, the better I got in school. Like I learned these tools and these skills about, you know, what happens when you apply yourself and you're dedicated and you see progress and results. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I was one of the you know better swimmers on the Eastern Seaboard, and I got in all the great colleges and all of that. Um, ended up going to Stanford. Number One collegiate swimming program in the country, and obviously an incredible academic institution and that's really where uh, I was introduced to alcohol for the first time. I'd gotten drunk a couple times prior to that on recruiting trips, but that was where it really took hold of me and you know I have very vivid um, visceral memories of of that feeling of being drunk for the first time and having this sensation like I was being wrapped in a warm blanket and the answer to every question i ever had was suddenly, you know, at my fingertips and i felt comfortable in my own skin and able to have a conversation and just you know capable of kind of navigating life in a way that i felt like everyone else naturally knew how to do and i thought this is the solution that i've been looking for and i i think that that's a common sensibility that you find, you know, amongst alcoholics and drug addicts. Uh, And it works, you know, it brought me, it, it taught me social skills and suddenly I could go to parties and talk to girls and crack jokes and all of that, but it works until it doesn't work. And it stops working and then it starts to denigrate your life. And it didn't take long before it started to undermine, you know, the goals and the ambitions that I had because I was, you know, I I was and and still am a very ambitious person. But it really just eroded all of that. And, you know, it's a progressive disease. But over time, it took me to some really dark and, and desperate places.
0: Yeah. And that's why I think it is important to look at the cause or at least why I find it important to look at the cause. Because there are probably so many people listening right now or watching right now that are like, Rich, I'm not yet an alcoholic or I'm not yet uh, a drug addict, but I feel the same way as you felt as a kid. I feel socially awkward. I find it hard to make conversations. I struggle. So they're actually on the precipice of going in the direction you went in. So it's almost like when we can stop there, we can actually go, well, what's the issue there? Like, why is it that so many of us growing up feel picked last? Like you said, everyone had the rule book, right? Like it felt like everyone had the rule book, but the funny thing is no one did. But it felt like that to you. And that's how people who are listening and watching right now. They feel that I have the rule book or they feel you have the rule book or they feel their friends have the rule book. How do we solve it even before that stage? What solutions have you come up with there of what are other better, healthier ways to open up, to feel confident, to feel comfortable talking to people?
1: Well, I think it, 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 it then becomes uh, about the language that you speak so well, right? It's an internal Job. It's an it's a it's an internal um, journey that I think we all have to go on to figure out what makes us uniquely who we are. Uh, and, you know, those, those sort of natural discomforts that I think we all have on some level, whether they're uh, a direct result of childhood trauma or just improper parenting or an unhealthy environment in which somebody, you know, was raised and grew up, all of these things contribute to that sense of insecurity or, or you know, a lack of connection. And I think the way forward, as opposed to trying to medicate through drugs and alcohol or other things, social media, you know, shopping, uh, whatever it is, Anything outside of yourself to resolve or numb whatever emotional, just you know, sort of discontentment that you're experiencing, is a futile errand, right? Like the only, the only sustainable, healthy way of addressing that is to find a way to get comfortable with who we are internally, and I think it begins with a practice of self-love and a gratitude practice meditation mindfulness there's so much mainstream acceptance and recognition of all of these tools that I feel were lacking when I was growing up I mean I'm older than you and and I, I didn't go on the you know amazing spiritual journey that that you have gone on um, but I think there there is now uh um, you know, kind of an amenability to that, that, that didn't exist in the, in the 70s, you know, when I was a kid. And I think that's great. So for anybody who's watching or listening, if you're feeling that um, level of discontent or you're experiencing, um, you know, an inability to connect with other people, you know, be aware of when you're reaching outside of yourself to change that internal state and instead kind of direct that inward. And go on that journey instead, and I think it will lead you to a you know a healthier destination over time.
0: Yeah, really well said. And I, I think you're spot on because what I find is that it's also the narrative that children hear from their teachers, parents, and media. So I remember if you're a kid that spends time alone, teachers or parents would be like, oh, he or she doesn't have a lot of friends.
1: Mm, Right. Rather than the narrative. of
0: Yeah, exactly. Rather than the narrative of, oh, he or she's really comfortable being alone. Right? It's like the narrative of always negative or like if you had a birthday party and only five kids showed up, it's like, oh, they're not very popular at school. When actually most of us would say we probably don't have more than five great friends. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think society has created a very narrow box or checklist uh, and we're all expected to kind of fall in line and meet that criteria. And the truth is, is that the human condition is much more varied and we need to celebrate those differences Mm -hmm. rather than judge them against the parameters of what's socially acceptable and that Mm -hmm. limited scope. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what we've done traditionally and that marginalizes most people, right? So it's about broadening the aperture and understanding that, that we all have gifts and things that make us uniquely who we are and to the extent that we can celebrate those differences or those unique qualities, I think that's a, an also like a very healthy path forward.
0: Yeah, what have been your self-love and gratitude practices? Because I know you mentioned both of them there and they're very important pillars in your own life. What's a great self-love practice, like a daily thing people have right. done that's really helped well, I, to- I will
1: preface my answer to this by saying that that self love and gratitude. The, these are not my natural disposition. <laughs> my natural disposition is self loathing, insecurity, uh, resentment, anger, like all of that, right? And and of course, that's fertile ground for alcoholism. So I have to work very hard to keep those negative emotional tendencies at bay, and and to and to cultivate to bring gratitude and self love into my life. So you know, it begins with very simple, cheesy practices like. Repeating the mantra, I love myself. Or even more powerful, um, what would somebody who loves themselves do in this situation? If I right. love myself, what would I do in this situation? Oh, I like those, yeah. Always bringing yourself back to that. Do you know um, Kamal Ravakant?
0: I don't know. So
1: he's an amazing guy. You should have him on your show. But he just wrote a book called... Uh, um, Love yourself like your life depends on it. And it's full of all of these kind of self-love practices, Mm -hmm. which are very simple, but I think very profound. Yeah, Uh, Cultivating gratitude involves creating a gratitude list every single day, writing down the simple things that you're grateful for, and then expressing that gratitude through actions and your interconnections with other human beings on a daily basis.
0: Tell me about an instance where you used, because you're right, like we see these everywhere. They're in articles, like you said, they're considered cheesy now, but we both know that they work. Tell me tell me about a time when you used the first one for example that question of if i loved myself how would i do this tell me about an instance where you've seen that profoundly affect your life and with making a gratitude list like tell me about a time when you were in that self-loathing totally degenerative kind of position and then having a gratitude list, how that's made yeah. that
1: switch. Well, I think there's micro examples like when you're choosing what food to eat, you know, are you going to choose the fast food thing or the healthy thing? Well, mm-hmm. if you love yourself, you're going to choose it. So there's there's plenty of things like that. But I think in a very macro level, like I've leveraged these practices to, quite literally changed my life. Like I, for many years was a practicing corporate attorney, very unhappy in that profession, trying to jam this you know, square peg into a round hole forever until I had a bit of an existential crisis kind of crash into a health scare that really forced me to take stock of how I was living and make some changes. And I made a decision, a very conscious decision at this time, it was right around when I turned 40, that I was going to engage in activities that made me happy. Even if they made no sense, even if they weren't moving my life forward in a, in a, in a, in a traditional career sensibility. Um, and that meant like, I'm gonna go to the pool in the middle of the day and go for a swim or I'm gonna go trail running, or I'm gonna ride my bike like, in, on, on a, a, at two o'clock on a Wednesday when I'm supposed to be at work. And I didn't care what anyone thought of that. And I feel like that was very much, uh, uh, it was very difficult for me to begin doing things like that, but that was how I was exercising or practicing self-love. Like, I'm just gonna do this thing that makes me happy. It's very simple. It's a very primal activity and it doesn't have to mean anything. It doesn't have to be moving me forward in any particular direction. It's really just honoring myself. Little did I know that repeating those behaviors over time would completely change how I live my life in every simple regard. But um, at the time I didn't know that. It was just practicing honoring myself.
0: I'm sure in your career, like the career path you had that you wanted to break away from, I'm sure there are a number of peers that wanted to break away too, mm. I'm guessing. I'm, I'm assuming yeah. having well, worked in- Well, the legal in-
1: profession is filled with people who are, <laughs> are not, not exactly fulfilled doing right, that. Right, right. I assume yeah, that. Yeah. It's yeah. an interesting thing though, when you say, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go do this other thing. You think they would celebrate you, but yeah. actually they get very angry. Of course, yeah. <laughs> because if you could break out, that means they can too, and they have to, they have to really confront that in themselves.
0: And that's my point. So, that if you had peers that, what was different- about your ability to break out. And, and I'm not saying, and I, you know, you're not an egotistic person. I'm not asking you to be egotistic. I'm asking you to share lessons. What was different in that you were able to break out and do something that now you're more aligned with who you want to be as the future moves on versus the people that don't make that step? What is the difference?
1: I think it was abandoning any connection to practicality and really living in faith. You know, it really tested my faith. It. it because the the reason I was able to do it is because, and this is with Julie's help, was because I embraced the fact that it was a spiritual journey fundamentally. So yes, I left being a lawyer and I became this ultra endurance athlete and author and podcaster. But it wasn't because when I was a lawyer, I got out my whiteboard and created a, a wish list or you know, basically tried to, you know, create this is my dream scenario for my life. I just started engaging in what. I felt was more aligned with my unique blueprint. And with that, I would start pulling on the threads that would appear every day. And I was tested, it was very difficult. We went through incredible financial dismantling. Like I was tested in every regard you can imagine. Um, people saying I was crazy, all of it, right? Um, but by having faith and trusting in that sense of what was right for myself and, and learning to, um, Listen to and rely on that instinctual voice, uh, I think taught me a lot about who 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 I am and also about resolve and ultimately, I think that's why I was able to see it through. so if you look on the internet, it kind of looks like it all happened like this, like overnight, I just made this decision and became this other thing this is this was like I mean, I've been doing this for you know fifteen years at this point, and I got sober at thirty one it really began when I went to rehab at age 31 and started to reconfigure my life based on spiritual principles, and here I am 22, 23 years later, still learning, still growing, still making mistakes.
0: So it's very much not an overnight thing, and it's all a spiritual journey. Mm. And what is your faith in at that time? Because it's almost like most people when they're in that transition it's like you don't really have faith in yourself or you may not have faith in your skills like is your faith in the belief that doing the right thing is the right thing either way or is your faith in the fact that you have your wife who's supportive like what is that faith in because I feel like that's the hardest thing for people and I can only speak for myself that I knew that my faith was in the guidance of my teachers my Mm -hmm. faith was in the books that I'd read and the philosophy I believed in and and my faith was in there's a beautiful, beautiful verse in a text called the Manusmriti, which says that if you protect your purpose, your purpose protects you. Right. And that was what my faith was in was that statement. And I was like, I'm gonna test that statement to its limits. But that statement requires that you understand what your purpose Correct. is. Correct. Yes. Absolutely. And I very much did not know what. That's my what I'm saying. Was. So, what was your faith in? So.
1: Well first of all I will say that I was on a I was on a journey to discover what that purpose was mm. and I had a fundamental belief that that I did have a per- that there is or was a purpose for me to discover mm-hmm. and I used endurance training as a vehicle for that process of self discovery because there's something about being out on a trail for hours and hours and hours or on an eight-hour bike ride, you're stripped of all artifice and the kind of low-grade suffering that you experience forces you to confront yourself in a very honest way, right? And you meet yourself in a place that you're not used to. And and there's, there's a... Um, there's a lack of of artificiality and artifice in that place where you can be really honest. Like you're, you're you're wrestling with your soul at the most profound level, I think, and and that's what attracted me to this world, um, and that's what helped me answer all of these questions, getting comfortable in that crucible. But if I had to say what is the philosoph- philosophical belief that kind of underpins that, I would say that that. Um, that we we all are truly here we are we are here to we are here to grow and we are here to on a journey of greater self actualization and the closer we can approximate that place of self actualization the better position we are in to express our unique blueprint and purpose mm. in service to other human beings mm. right and for me it's been a process of trying to uncover what that is for me and then ultimately bring greater expression to that for the betterment of other people.
0: What does it feel like right now that it is for you compared to when you first started on this path? Where's the evolution of that?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting because for a long time, it was like, oh, you're the vegan ultra endurance athlete guy. And it's like, yeah, I am. And I did those things. Um, but that's just one expression of who yeah. I am. And yeah. the podcast, you know, much like your show, has been about trying to continue that growth and to understand that, that I was able to do those things in the endurance world um, because I understood that we are all sitting on top of gigantic reservoirs of human potential that remain untapped. And I was able to tap into that aspect of myself in an athletic context and express that. But there are all these other areas of untapped potential in my life and in my friends, people that I meet, everybody's life, right? And I wanted to continue that Growth curve and that learning process of of tapping into those other areas spiritually, mentally, emotionally, intellectually, um, socially, every aspect of what it means to be as self actualized as we possibly can.
0: And what do we do that? You've you've mentioned that a few times now. Like you know, it's interesting that when you achieve something, your identity becomes crafted around it. So it's mm. almost like you were that healthy vegan dude, and you know, like you did right. the, like, and and yeah. then and I can see that there's a part of you that almost. There's a part of you that's like, but that's not all of me. And and I'm more than that. Yeah, I don't want to be defined by correct. that marker. So how do you how do you process that? Because I think a lot of people struggle with that, whether it's their past failures or their past successes that start to define everything about who they attract in their life, who they spend time with, what opportunities mm-hmm. they come their way. I mean, I'll give an example of something that's coming to my mind right now is when uh, when we had Kobe Bryant on the show and... Kobe started to talk about how like, and this, this was huge for me, he was saying, basically, no one believed that he could make TV or movies or media, because he was a basketball player. Mm-hmm. They're like, what do you know about this space? And so when he was trying to sell these shows, no one wanted to buy them. And that's why he had to build his own studio. And that's where he was building the studio for Dear Basketball. And he was writing these novels and these books that were then being turned into movies and TV shows and podcasts. So he, even someone like him was totally being pigeonholed and right. defined. How do you process that for yourself? And how do you help other people process anyone who feels limited by their past failures, but also limited by their past successes? Well, a couple things. Yeah.
1: First of all, um, that identity or whatever it is that's looming out there is just a story. Mm it's only as powerful uh, as as you allow it to be, Mm -hmm. right? You always have control over that narrative or how strongly you want to be reminded of a certain identity. You can always recraft that. You only have control over your own behaviors and your own thoughts and your own interactions with other human beings. You can't control how other people perceive Mm -hmm. you. That's none of your business. So if you're unhappy with the story that's being told about you all you can do is act in contravention of that you can't control how other people perceive that but you can control the story you tell yourself about who you mm. are so it's about becoming you know you you hear the adage of like be the be the movie star in your own movie of the movie of your life right and understand that at any given moment you that these stories are just they're drawn out of thin air they're 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 not, they're not real mm. this is a projection that comes from a collective imagination. So change the story if you don't like it, and if you don't like the story that other people are telling about you, you can mute that and just do your own thing. So when I didn't, you know, when I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the vegan, you know, athlete, I just started a podcast and started talking about other stuff, you yeah. know. And then seven years later, that's still a thing, but you know, I'm known for other things now. Yeah, people will fall into line, you know, with with the, you know, based upon your behavior and your actions.
0: Yeah, with your identity the way it is right now, what are you most excited to not be known for, but be acknowledged for what you're doing, like for yourself, not from other people, not for the external validation, but what are you most excited about doing for yourself? Just continuing to learn.
1: You know, I just, I want to be a lifelong learner. And I think that that growth curve, you know, always exists. And there's always people out there that you can, uh, that you can, Take valid information and tools from to improve your life. Mm. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how I want to be perceived. No, of course. Um, but I think that uh, and and people ask me all day, like, oh, what's the what's the vision? Where do you mm. see yourself in five? It's like I don't think about that. Like mm. I'm so fulfilled in doing what I'm doing right now, and the fact that I get to um, be on this personal growth trajectory by having amazing conversations with incredible human beings, and then you get to share that with other people, and it impacts them. I mean. I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything more, um, you know, more gratifying. Any yeah. any kind of career trajectory that would be more gratifying than that. So what's What's the grateful. most interesting
0: thing you learned recently? Whether it was a skill or a technique or a fact or a stat or some research that blew your mind or some experience mm. that just really changed the way you were thinking about something. Ah, uh, that's interesting.
1: You know, I, I'd probably go back to Kamal Ravikant, like okay. him, him and his simple practices of learning how to love himself. Like he, went, he walked me through these experiences where he really hit rock bottom emotionally in a, very, in, in, in a couple of different ways throughout his life and how these very basic, simple, easy to apply practices have transformed how he sees the world and experiences the world, mm-hmm. I think is really profound because of its sheer simplicity and power.
0: Do you think based on that what you just said now do you think that humans only change through pain I get that a lot I mean pain is pain
1: is 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 the best motivator for change obviously and I think the biggest changes that I've made in my life have really been forged through pain Does you that know, mean I'm stubborn like I don't want, I'm not going to change until you know my whole world is falling on top of me and then oh yeah okay I guess I need to modify that yeah. um, but it is amazing how human beings are wired that way because the possibility of change exists in every moment, right? And yet we seem incapable or or challenged in our ability to leverage that unless we're being pressured by some Mm -hmm. external force to do so.
0: Yeah. If someone's listening or watching right now, but is feeling like they're a safety, secure, stability-motivated individual, they're like, oh, that's just too much risk for me. It's like- even the spiritual faith everything you guys are talking about like that's just you know to live in that uncertainty to live with that much faith to to push to that degree what what are your advice for them like what would you say to that kind of well advice? I would say
1: that security is an illusion mm-hmm. I think people that are focused on security have control issues they think that they can control the world outside of themselves and their own behavior and I think that, that is a a vast illusion um, that is an epidemic in our culture. I think in every moment we have this sense of, I'm good, things are static. Like I can just stay in this place. And the truth is with every breath, with every thought that we entertain, with every word that comes out of our mouth, we're either growing as an individual or we are regressing. That's the truth, right? And there is no security, everything is a risk. We're here for a very short period of time. So my call to action to everybody is don't wait until you find yourself in some existential crisis because you've been living your life based upon some you know social rule book that doesn't fit your own blueprint. Instead, embrace what is uniquely you and have the courage and the fortitude and the faith to try to bring expression to that. It may be scary and it might contravene what your parents want for you. And it might seem risky, but ultimately, I think the riskiest thing to do is to play it safe and live your life in accordance with, you know, somebody else's expectations of what you
0: should do and be. How did did you know that you'd found something about yourself that was uniquely you? Like you've said that a few times now, uniquely you. How, How do you know when something is uniquely you? Because I feel like so many of us are either so influenced by everything that's happening or we just, I feel like, you, we've we've lost our ability to talk to ourselves and know that that's our voice. Yeah. Right. Like it's like most people when you hear a voice, they hear a voice in their head. They don't know if that's them or something else, and they can't tell the difference. So, what are those indicators or signals where you're like, yeah, that I'm getting closer, even if I'm not. It's there a yet.
1: really good question,
0: um, and I don't have like a simple
1: pithy answer. Sure, sure, that. sure. I think it's I think it's hard. You know, I think you're correct in that we're so distracted. You know, our phones are always in our hands. There's always a reason to not be present with ourselves. And the more detached we become, the more difficult it is to know what that internal voice is. So I think the process of... of, of of trying to understand what is uniquely, you know, what is unique about Jay involves that looking inward process, right? It's about meditation and mindfulness and getting quiet and trying to, you know, spend time uh, contemplating, like what was it that made you happy as a kid? Like, what did you like to do when you were left to your own devices that now you feel like you haven't done in a long time or would be foolish as an adult to spend time doing? And maybe there's a lesson there for you to see, you know, I don't know. I can't answer that for you, but I know that those answers reside within all of us. And in order to heed them or get clarity, you really have to have have the discipline to um, carve out that kind of quiet time, solitude with yourself.
0: Mm. What's the best advice you've received on solitude on the podcast? Is there anyone you remember that kind of you just felt embodied solitude the best or that kind of quiet or that... Yeah, I mean, there's so, been a
1: couple people, you know, of course, you have like meditation masters like Sharon Salzberg, who, you know, had some amazing things to say about that. I think maybe the most profound though, and in, in, in the most grounded way, was you've all know Harari. Yeah. Basically yeah, love talking Yuval. about how like clarity is a superpower. Mm-hmm. And now, because we're so distracted, distraction is our natural disposition to just be clear and quiet, to have presence of mind, to have clarity about what you think about a particular thing um, is a superpower where that used to just be normal, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Which kind of makes it easier to distinguish yourself because all you have to do is put the phone away, learn how to be quiet, learn how to connect with your internal voice. And that makes you much more capable than the person
0: sitting next to you. Mm. What was the conversation that surprised you the most? Was there anyone that just totally not blew your mind, but just surprised you with a belief that maybe something you held true, but when you spoke to them, they they changed your mind on it. Was there anyone like that, that changed your mind on something that you thought was very concrete in your life? or? Hmm. I know it's a Do big question. Yeah, yeah, think yeah, about yeah. it, yeah. I'm always fascinated by our beliefs and how they can shift. Like, I've always considered myself to be someone who, it's like, I felt like when I was spiritually immature, I felt like I had my beliefs and they were the answers and right. then nothing else was true. So what I believed was true and anyone else's answers were completely false. And then as I started to grow more, you start to realize you know nothing. And you're like, okay, I, I don't know anything now because I'm not really sure about any of these beliefs. And then you get to a point where it's like, well, I have some values and beliefs, they work for me. And now I'm willing to trade and upgrade based on what I'm exposed to, because yeah. now I learned that I need to have a map or a guidebook or a rule book that yeah. works because you need that for life. Yeah. But then I hear someone say something and I'm like, oh, like that has just opened up my mind in a completely different way. I think um, in addition to that, what
1: happens when you're confronted with a truth that contravenes your, mm. what you, your worldview the first thing that it does is it pushes that cognitive bias button. And you're like, that can't be right because this is the way I see the world, right? So you feel the resistance coming up. So for you to say, oh, wow, I didn't think of it that way. And to embrace that difference of opinion or perspective, I think is the healthiest thing to do. So for me, it's less about, oh, here's an example and more about, um, trying to be in that place of of empathy and compassion and openness, mm. and to notice when I feel like my resistance creeping up, whether mm. it's somebody who has a different you know nutritional or dietary perspective than I do, or somebody who uh, you know was able to get sober and maintain their sobriety, you know, by way of a protocol that is at odds with like how I think it should be yeah, done. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And to just be like the world's a big place. The human condition is is varied. Like I don't have all the answers and to be able to sit with somebody who's coming from a different perspective and try to find mutual ground and meet them where they're at with compassion and with empathy, I think is um, really powerful Uh, It's something that I'm always endeavoring to do with whatever guests that I have on my show. And I think it's what's sorely lacking in our culture right now. And I think if there's anything that I'm trying to do with my show and the example that I set with how I conduct my conversations is to say, look, if we wanna move forward as a healthy culture, as a healthy society, we have to be able to meet each other in our differences with compassion, with understanding. That doesn't mean that we do it with, Unhealthy boundaries, but we have to be able to have mature conversations about our differences because this polarization and the separation that we're seeing, and the unhealthy siloing of opinions, I think is really um, polluting and denigrating our ability to move forward as a as a as a healthy society, and is deeply concerning to me.
0: Yeah, I'm so with you on that. I think that's that's a great answer because, yeah, that that lack of judgment. And openness and just stopping yourself from, like you said, letting your your controls creep in, that's probably the hardest thing. Right. Because you've been on a train of thought or a school of thought since you were a kid and it's built and built and built mm. and it's got you to somewhere, which is probably okay. <laughs> And then all of a sudden comes someone comes and just surprises you with a note what's been the best way you've found apart from having conversation on the podcast have you found that people are able to create that openness in their own lives is it more travel is it watching things that you wouldn't watch like what have you seen that like how can we encourage that more for people to be okay with exposing themselves to opposing ideas without placing judgment on them
1: yeah it's tough I mean I think travel is a big one right investing in experience mm. um, People who have, who have you know, done that tend to have broader views and perspectives and, and more, open-minded, are more open-minded about a variety of issues than
0: people who just stay in one place and have their news feed. I, I feel exactly the same way because I find like as humans, we're so good at that singular judgment. It's like if one person's doing one thing that you don't agree with, you don't agree with anything they do. And and that amplification of judgment is, is you know, it can, it can be really harsh for us. And I fall into that trap all the time. I, I make that mistake all the time where it's like, and we do the opposite too. If you like one thing one person does, you like everything they do. Yeah. So we, we also do it with positives, right? Because it's simpler, I guess, for the mind to process. Right. It, it requires less thought and less intelligence to either neglect someone based on one negative or appreciate someone based on one positive. It's, it's more complicated to look at the gray area. So with that
1: understanding then, how does that influence how you comport yourself on social media, right? Mm-hmm. There's this, this um, impetus or impulse, like when something is happening, there's a wrong in the world. Do you feel like you have a responsibility because you have this audience and this platform to voice your opinion or redress it or engage in the dialogue and the arguments that surround it? Like, how do you think about and practice that?
0: Yeah, my my focus has always been like, I'm fascinated by timeless truths. Like that's that's where I get my personal sensibility, my personal awareness. Everything comes from things that are timeless. So I'm not the biggest commentator on world events and I never have been. And that's not because I'm trying to stay away from them because I think they're complicated. I stay away from them because I'm like, This is one element of another problem, another problem. And I'm trying to address the root, which I believe is timeless, as opposed to the symptom that we're currently seeing. That's my personal approach to it. I'm not saying it's the right approach or the wrong approach. It's the approach that feels more natural and uniquely, Jay, to me, to feel like I want to address those which are timeless truths, the roots behind what is really being affected, and speak about those at a very human level. And so I've chosen to do that. And because... I don't really know when a news report or anything goes. I'm not really even sure if what I'm reading is perfect or right. Or, so I'm not confident on that. So I'd rather stick to what I believe I am confident on. Right. So that's been my approach. Right, I'm right, willing right. to dive into it, but yeah. that's, kind of, that's been my way of addressing it. And I don't feel the need to address what's happening right now because I feel like we also have this obsession of we're going through the worst time or this is the worst mm-hmm. this or this is the worst that. And I'm just like, well, I'm spending a lot of time with people who are part of the solution and are doing something about it. And I feel elevated and um, I feel confident that there are solutions out there because I'm spending time with people who are working on the solutions. So I don't really get a lot of joy from just talking about what's going wrong. That's where, Because that's the basis of what I learned and how I was trained and also what I've been fascinated by. Because I've seen stories change, facts change, this change, that change, opinions change. So I'm like, this stuff all is always changing, but there are some timeless truths through the roots of humanity's issues, like ego. Everyone knows the ego exists. Everyone knows the ego is an issue. You can see it every day in every form. And I could comment on everyone's ego every day in the media, but I have ego too. And so it's, it's knowing that and working to the root of how do we remove ego and help people overcome their ego. That to me is more fascinating for me. I'm not saying that's the most important work in the world. I'm just saying it's the most important work that I can do. And I think that was a big thing for me. And I feel that talking to you, like for me, becoming uniquely me was being very honest about what I could do. And so I don't see what I do as big or small. I just see it as this is what I can do and that's uniquely me and that may not be the biggest or the best thing in the world or it may not be the most needed thing in the world but this is me and th- and that's my offering and you know being okay with that yeah i mean i think listen
1: i think if everybody was more uniquely who they are the world would be a better place now the counter argument to that is like listen somebody's got to take the garbage out and you know there's of course i understand all of that but i feel like we are living in a desert of authenticity in the sense that mm. everybody's so disconnected from who they are and we're all reacting to this world and playing this game and trying to be these certain people, whether it's you know, getting the, you know, the, the fancy car or the good job or you know, <clears throat> the right suit or whatever it is, um, we're living for these externalities, right? And the more that we invest in that, the less connected we are to ourselves and to divinity, right? And to our fellow human beings. We are coming from ego mm-hmm. and we're living in a, this, this detached state that I think ultimately is, is a disease, mm-hmm. you know? And so if there's anything that, that I like to speak to, it's about like that reconnection process. Mm. And to the extent that we can be more connected to ourselves and to other human beings and to bring greater expression to that, the world then becomes by virtue of that behavior, a better place.
0: Can you have both? How and why? What do you mean by like that? Like when you're saying, like because I feel like it's become very, um, you know, it's that rhetoric's very common of like, you know, these material things are taking us away from ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yet we find that we all have desires, we all have needs, we all have likes and dislikes. So my question is, is there a path to have things? and get connected with yourself, or are of they course. opposite? To yeah, yourself? the things are not bad in and of themselves. It's our relationship to them. It's okay, we project
1: upon them. And I think the problem arises when what we project upon them is a sense of identity or a contentedness mm-hmm. or um, a, a crafted identity that is forged through these material items or jobs or whatever it is, right? That helps craft this narrative of identity. And at the cost of that internal journey of like connecting with who, you know, what what is truly, you know, what is our heart actually saying? Yeah. And understanding that that, that which, which we seek most, which is connection, happiness, contentment, um, you know, purpose, all of these things cannot be found through seeking, in the external world, they can only be found through that internal journey, mm. and our whole culture is crafted around these externalities. When in truth, um, what we seek most is
0: already in our possession. Yeah, and it's almost like yeah. In the the Sanskrit word is Maya, which I'm sure right. you're of aware of. Yeah. yeah, and it's like you look at the. It's funny it's how all many, Maya. yeah, and it's so <laughs> funny how many places I. It's so funny. My friend was here from London a couple of weeks back, and. He'd never been to LA before and I took him to Hollywood Boulevard just to see Hollywood And he was just like, this is such a letdown. Like, you know, it's- When it's you a, realize what Hollywood actually yeah, is. Yeah, literally. And, right. and it's like, you know, you have this dream of like- <laughs> Hollywood's an idea. Oh, Hollywood, yeah, exactly. Place, right, you know? exactly, exactly. And it's, and, and it's almost like the physical place never lives up to it or, you know, and you see that with so many areas in, in reality. I, I remember so many places. I was like, you have to get people are like, you have to go to this place. And when I went there and I was like, Oh is this it like really like you know and, and I think that's almost like the the same feeling of when we finally acquire that thing it's that same yeah. feeling but it's easier to say it when you've had the option to have it or had it of course and that's yeah. the you know that's I speak the,
1: that coming from a very privileged place correct no
0: and and yeah. and and, and th- what i'm saying is that how does someone This is the way I had it. So when I decided to become a monk, the way it worked for me is I just knew people and that wasn't me or my friends or it wasn't my family. I had been exposed to people who had it and genuinely and thankfully, authentically expressed their sadness. And that was the difference maker. That the people that I had met that had it, whether I saw them in a conference or I saw them at a video, they opened up and said that it didn't fulfill their needs.
1: Right, but here's the difference you had the awareness or the self-awareness to recognize that and to take action on that. But that truth, I think, is not a mystery to most people. I mean, no. here we are, we're in the Hollywood Hills. You look out here, there's lots of fancy houses, lots of fancy people and fancy cars. And in this town, you can't go a day without meeting somebody who's very well-to-do and yet also very unhappy, mm-hmm. right? It's, it is, it's in the atmosphere of this city, um, and most people will think, well, he just needs to get the next car or the next job. Or when you have that experience yourself and you get the thing that you've been aiming for, and then you have a momentary sense of glee or relief, you realize how quickly it fades. Instead of saying, well, maybe uh, that which I see cannot be found in the external world. Instead you think, yeah, but you know, now I just need to get the new jaguar or the mm, next mm, job mm, or what mm. you know it's always it's that it's that like you know chasing the dragon thing that i think yeah. most people do all the way to their grave mm. and that's the great tragedy of course so for you at a young age to be to have the self-awareness the cognizance to recognize that and take a contrary path i think is is unique
0: Yeah, and I I owe it to just meeting amazing people when I was young. And I think that's the biggest challenge now and what I'm trying to solve it through my podcast and even like this, like I just feel that if you're not exposed to alternative alternative methodologies and pathways, Mm -hmm. then you can never have that option. So I would never have chosen the path that I did if I wasn't exposed to it. And right. today we're exposed to a finite right. number of There apart. was no
1: on-purpose podcast when you were there trying was to an make that decision. And, yeah, and that's yeah, the yeah, thing. Exactly. Like, yeah, I yeah. remember being in co- I was at this, you know, look, I went to one of the best colleges in the world. Absolutely, and I remember, yeah. like, when I was a senior thinking, like, well, what am I going to do? Like, I, I had been a swimmer my whole life, and now I'm faced with the prospect of trying to figure out what I wanted my career to be. And yeah. I was baffled. And I remember going to the... the, the, the um, the career office or whatever, like the <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah. Like, yeah. They career were like, counselors, they yeah. were like, yeah, there were like brochures for consulting companies and investment banks. Yeah, of course, And, same, was and same I was as like, me. this is it. There was, I mean, I, you know, look, this was 1988. There was no internet or anything like that. Um, there was n- the resources that are now available yeah. to young people to help make these kinds of decisions, and and <clears throat> the the variety of experiences and possibilities that they're exposed to, you know, just w- would have been mind blowing to me at that time.
0: You've mentioned your wife a bunch of times throughout this interview as being such an important part of your spiritual journey. What's been amazing for both of you together on this spiritual journey? What have been some of the shared experiences Mm -hmm. or practices or methods in which you've both uh, learned together and and grown together? It's been
1: an incredible uh, partnership. I mean, there were so many times when I just thought I was a crazy person. Like I was not practicing law, not bringing in money, out on my bike all day, cars getting repossessed. Like we couldn't pay even the smallest bills that we had. It was very humiliating and and emasculating. And I remember being at my breaking point more than once and going to Julie and saying, this is ridiculous. We have kids, I I can't pay the bill. Like I need to go back to doing what I was doing before. And she would say, no, like we already know where that path leads. I don't know where this path that you're on now is going to lead, but I know that the answers that you seek and the resolution that we need ultimately will be found through continuing along this way. Like you need to you need to do this. Now that is extraordinary and exceptional because most partners would say, what are you doing, <laughs> yeah. crazy person? Like yeah, I'm gonna yeah. divorce you. Yeah, you know, yeah unless, exactly. Unless yeah. you get your shit together, right? Yeah. And for her to have that kind of fortitude and that kind of faith to have my back, like- I mean, who gets that?
0: You know what I mean? Like, what an incredible thing to have. So some people may be listening going, wow, you're so lucky, Rich. You've got a wife who's amazing. And people often say that to me as well. My wife is very supportive and amazing. But what what do you think you did maybe early on in the relationship? How have you continued to communicate? Either what did you do before that moment that you feel built such a strong bond with your wife that she had that belief and faith in you and that you had that for each other, if anything, and maybe nothing. And afterwards, what have you done to reciprocate with that love so she knows that it wasn't, not just that you've solved your life because that's not necessarily reciprocation. That's just what you believe. What have you done to reciprocate and, and share that journey with her as a way of saying, I'm so grateful you did this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, to the first part of the question, I definitely,
1: you know, married above my weight class. So <laughs> me too. I don't know. Yes. I don't know what to tell anyone. You know, yes. like I don't know what advice is in there, yeah. other than like, um, you know, try to do that. I guess. <laughs> I mean, listen. You know, my wife is an incredibly strong person, and yeah, yeah. I, and I, and that was what attracted me to her. Like she just had a sense about herself. So I needed that energy in my life and that has, you know, benefited my trajectory. In terms of how I pay it back and honor her for that, I mean, that's a practice just like anything else. She's just recently started this new business, um, plant-based cheese business. So it's now about me showing up for her in that regard and supporting her. Um, You know, she's written these cookbooks. Like I think there's something about our partnership where, where, um, we can come together, and one plus one is is definitely larger than two. Where we can co-create and make beautiful things together, but we also respect each other's um, individuality and independence. Like we're not reliant upon each other to complete ourselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like she can go and do her thing, and I can go do my thing, and and it's all good. We don't, we don't, we, we're not like we don't have like a porous boundary in that regard. Like we respect each other's. Um, respective fiefdoms. Mm. And, and, but then we can come together and and do things cool. How did you meet? In yoga class.
0: Nice. Okay.
1: Yeah, I was was newly sober. I was right out of rehab. I I was in rehab for a hundred days in Oregon. Got out of rehab, confused, but understanding that I needed to do things differently. I needed a new peer group, social group. I needed healthy activities to keep me out of the bars and the clubs. And I found my way to a yoga studio in West LA. And I just, I went every day and, uh, and met a whole new group of friends and people that became my social circle. So I'd known her for quite some time, long before we dated. But I did a year of celibacy out of, uh, my first year of sobriety was celibate. Wow. Um, and that was a very profound, powerful experience yeah. that I would highly recommend to anybody. And it was informed you know, in large part because my, um, my relationships with the opposite sex was very intertwined in an unhealthy way with drinking and using. And I had to disentangle that and get clarity so that I could become more self-actualized to be um, the kind of person that I would wanna be in a relationship with. Uh, so that was incredibly profound, and then um, I met Ju- you know basically I met Julie on the tail end of that one year, and I've been with her ever since.
0: Did you did you ever ask her what she saw in you at that time? That
1: she was um, she was coming out of a divorce, so it was never a sense like oh we're going to be together. Mm. Like I thought my next girlfriend, I was coming out of a really awful relationship situation, and I thought my next relationship is going to be with somebody who's younger than me, who doesn't have a lot of baggage, and it's going to be very simple. And I met Julie, who was older than me, had two sons, and was getting divorced. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah. Um, I don't think either of us was really in a great place to be in a long-term relationship all of a sudden,
0: Mm.
1: Um, but sometimes that's the way these things work out. And yeah, we've been together for 20 years, over 20
0: years. It's amazing. I look forward to meeting her. What was that? What was that one year of celibacy like? What was the toughest part of that year? And how did you? How did you even get the idea or the resolve that that was going to be the antidote to the experience you were having with women and alcohol? When I was in treatment, uh,
1: I was very aware that um, that you know I'd reached a, a sort of nadir in my in my life. You know, I always thought of myself as this. Smart, ambitious, upwardly mobile person. I gotten in all these. I had all the stuff, you know, the resume mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. make me look good, um, and yet here I was, this seemingly intelligent person who found himself in a mental institution. So my best thinking landed me in a place that I never thought I would be, and that was a profound reality and realization that I had to take to heart. And what that did was it created a willingness in me to receive help from other people. I never wanted to ask for help, let alone receive it, but I was in a, in a, in a, in a place of great willingness to do that. And it was impressed upon me that, uh, that my relationships with women were dysfunctional and unhealthy, and I needed to relearn how to do that. And I was told that this would be a good way to do it, celibacy, and I, I was in a p- place of just saying yes. Like, yeah, if, you tell me, if you're telling me that this will make me better, then I will do that. Rather than, well, how's that gonna help? You know, like questioning it. That's what kept me drunk for a long time. Um, so I just decided I was gonna say yes to all of these things. And that was one of them. And it was difficult. And what you realize is, is how much you, or at least I can only speak from my own experience, but the extent to which I was using relationships to medicate myself in the same way I was using drugs and alcohol. If I felt uncomfortable or um, in, a, in, a, in a state of dis-ease, I could seek validation or distract myself through the opposite sex in the same way a drink or a drug would do that. And I think just understanding that helped me um, like unclutch or detach from that dynamic in a way that helped me uh, then figure out a better, healthier way for having that interaction. And I think when you say, listen, I'm not dating, I'm not having sex, I'm like, I'm celibate for a year. It's incredibly like, it's a very powerful thing. Cause then it it, it strips away, like basically it removes all of the, the kind of manipulation and ego that goes into like every interaction that you have with the opposite sex and makes you very aware of how much you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's like you're standing in your power because you don't need anything from another human being. Yeah. And I think that helps you um, reframe all of it. And I would, like I said, like I would high, I highly yeah. recommend anybody who's who's challenged in their relationships to explore that in themselves.
0: I love hearing that from you because I literally just, in my book, I, I write about being celibate mm-hmm. for three years. And I was, I was I was trying to figure out how to explain it and express it in a way that, I felt people would be able to understand what was truly achieved from it. Uh-huh. And, and it's funny because literally in my book, I literally wrote about how the, the, one of these definitions of uh, the monk term brahmacharya in Sanskrit is right use of energy. Uh-huh. And it talks about the amount of energy that is wasted on the ego impressing the m- manipulation sometimes or the coercing of the opposite or same sex. And, and how much of that time and energy and mental space saved right. is so powerful right. for creativity and yeah. wisdom and insight yeah, and yeah. spiritual revelation. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's good hearing you say it. It gives, yeah. me, it gives me even more affirmation. And you, just,
1: you become very aware, like you notice, like, yeah. oh, like I'm feeling like I want to do this, but I'm not going to do Like you, you just create, a, you, there's a lot of self-awareness that, yeah. uh,
0: that comes as a result of that practice. all right man we're in the last two segments of today's podcast so we've got fill in the blanks which is a Mm. new edition that we've started so i'm gonna say this you gotta finish the sentences so fitness was always a spiritual practice i like what it feels like to be who i am changing your path can set you free or imprison you running the rat race will lead to your
1: demise okay i work towards greater self-actualization
0: and service social constructs are illusions okay so these are your final five you have to answer in one word to one sentence maximum so your final five the first question is what have you been chasing in your life that you no longer pursue you know i i I would like i said like i'd love to say like oh external validation how do you know when you are not following your intuition or you're going against your intuition how do you know personally you can feel you can feel, if you're if you're
1: relatively connected to yourself you can feel that dissonance how what does it feel like it feels like, it feels like a disease it feels like a like a slow creeping anxiety hmm. like when your actions are not aligned with your values you know hmm. Yeah, and I think sure. if you the, if you continue to deny it then the universe makes it known to you it starts knocking and then it knocks louder and then it knocks no- you know it's like yeah, hey yeah. rich maybe you should stop drinking you know yeah, yeah. year 2 year 3 year 4 then the cops get involved and then you know <laughs> good yeah <laughs> fair fair
0: question number 3 if if you could create a law for everyone in the world to follow what would it be oh wow I really do think the most important thing is to is to cultivate
1: self-love mm-hmm. because that's the foundation mm-hmm.
0: upon which all good things will come. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Question number four, what is your best parenting advice if you have, if you have a piece of advice? Oh, there's so many. I mean, w- one thing I would say is uh, your
1: job is to love your kids. It's not their job to love you.
0: Nice. That's so there's a lot packed into that. Oh, there's a lot packed into that. That's awesome. I can just leave it yeah, at that. Leave it there. We'll have to go into that on part two. Okay, fifth and final question of the final five. What is the greatest lesson you've learned in the last 12 months?
1: I think the thing in the last 12 months that, that has really been impressed upon me is the sheer impermanence of everything. Like at 53 now, I'm starting to confront my mortality in a way that I, that I didn't in my 40s. Mm. And when we see kind of the fragility of social structures out there, and now we're dealing with environmental crises and the coronavirus and all of these things, like we tend to think like we're in a post-history world and we're just not. And as I age and confront my own mortality and see the kind of um, the impermanence of everything out in the world you realize how not meaningless but how unimportant most of the things are that we concern ourselves with on a daily
0: basis amazing thank you rich it's been fantastic it's amazing thank you so much yeah this is a brilliant conversation thank you so Mm -hmm. much for sharing so vulnerably and authentically i really feel like yeah every answer you gave was was you know truly uniquely you and and genuine to you so i really appreciate that man thank you so much and everyone's been watching Please, please, please go and follow and check out Rich Roll on Instagram, the Rich Roll podcast. Make sure you go and subscribe to his podcast, follow him on Instagram and anything that he said today or that we shared today in our conversation, please, please, please make sure that you go and post on Instagram with the quote, with the thought, with the idea. Tag us both in the post as well. I love seeing what you learn and take away from these episodes. It will mean the world to me. Thank you so much for listening to On Purpose and I'll see you again next week. This podcast was produced by Dust Light Productions. Our executive producer from Dustlight is Misha Youssef. Our senior producer is Juliana Bradley. Our associate producer is Jacqueline Castillo. Valentino Rivera is our engineer. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. And special thanks to...